Hey, we've actually been in this message series over the last few weeks called The Church We Hope For. And one of the reasons why we're investigating what is the church that we hope for is because these are the values that since the beginning of our church really have marked who we long to be. Uh, the first week in this series, we talked about this value of authenticity. What does it mean for us to be fully integrated human beings who can come and bring some of our gifts, our talents, but also our vulnerabilities, our weakness to the table together as a community? Secondly, last week, we talked about this theme of community and how community is actually an essential way that we experience God. Now, today we're talking about this theme of diversity, but we're going to talk about it in a unique way where we're going to tie in these themes of authenticity and community. Again, last week, one of the points that was made very significantly was this, is that community is actually an essential way that God actually comes to us and he meets us. In other words, there's ways that we can pray, we can read scriptures, there's ways that we can spend time in silence and solitude or be singing songs, and we experience God and his, his wonder, his presence. But there's a way that we actually experience God through each other, through the ways that together we share in life's joys as well as in life's sorrows. There's a way that God actually meets us in a very profound way. And we've talked about different examples of ways in which perhaps when I was going through my own season of depression, of having someone being able to speak in my ear that, hey, Drew, you're an okay person. You know, hey, you're going to make it. I'm here for you. And for us to be together. Now, there's a way in which, again, God comes to us through each other. And this is how community comes to us. Now, one of the images that we use to talk about the uniqueness of Christian community was the image of the Trinity or the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, you may not be a Christian here. Uh, either way, welcome. We're so glad you made it because here's the doctrine of the Trinity is basically this. Now, the Judeo-Christian religion really uh, emphasized and introduced a God who is monotheistic. In other words, God is one God. Now, here's what's unique about Christian theology, though. The doctrine of the Trinity says this. God is one God as opposed to the many deities that kind of numbered the, uh, the ancient world. God is one God, and yet God is three persons. Now, here's what we mean by that. Now, some of you are just like, what, what does that mean? That is mathematically and logically impossible. Well, here's what I'd like to posit to you, is that because God is transcendent and other, of course, there are aspects of God that you and I would never, ever comprehend or understand. Well, that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Uh, see, throughout Christian teaching, there's this belief that God is one, and yet God is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here's what that means then. It means that God actually exists in community, united as one, and yet also in community as three separate persons. So that way, unity and diversity are both actually emphasized within the Christian religion about who we believe who God is. And because God is this kind of God, right, we emphasize both unity but also diversity that many of us can come from different backgrounds, whether it's ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, sports team persuasions, uh, although Boston fans maybe are outside of that. Um, sorry if you're from Boston. Just saying, though, uh, Aaron Judge is going to hit his 61st home run today. Is he playing today? He's playing Boston today, I believe. Andrew, is he playing Boston today? Yeah? No? I don't know. Well, let's go. Let's go, Yankees. Yes. <laughs> Unity and diversity. There's a way then that each of us can come from disparate backgrounds and still be united because this is emblematic of who we believe about who God fundamentally is. Now, what's interesting, though, about this, this, uh, this theme of diversity and how do we bring diverse people together and how do we really start to convene as a community? The story that was read is a story of Jesus who actually enters into the world of someone very different than him. Jesus being this Jewish man, check out what happens, John chapter 4, look at what it says. Now he had to go through Samaria, let me stop there, because the ancient listener would be listening to this and be like, oh my goodness, what's Jesus doing? Now the reason why he would, uh, the ancient listener would say this is because Jews and Samaritans had a long history of feuds and division. 
Jews thought of Samaritans as half-breeds who believed heretical things. And so they were looked down upon. They were almost subclass. And so as a result, there were some Jews that would avoid Samaria altogether. They would not even go into the region. Um, you know, I was thinking of an example of this, and I was thinking like, so how, you know how Manhattanites refuse to go to Queens except for the airports? You know who you are, right? And uh, now, I know that's somewhat of a facetious example, and it's nowhere near um, does it capture the acrimony that existed between Samaritans and Jews. But it was this sense of like, why would I go there? And if I were to ever go there, for sure, I would never interact with a Samaritan. That's how deep and stark the divisions were. And yet, immediately, the clue is given in this story. Now, it says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria, So here Jesus is going through Samaria, and look what it says. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, because in that culture they walked to different places, sat down by the well. Now, it was about noon. Now, that's a very interesting point that's made. It's noon. The reason why that's important was because during noontime, it's the hottest time of day in the Mideast desert. No one usually goes to the well to get any water in this time. And yet, here Jesus is, and he's about to interact with a woman that's very different than himself, uh, as the story was read earlier. Now, here's the point of kind of this idea of Jesus taking this journey. He's actually going into Samaria, which is way different than what most even Jews would do. But I want to posit that there's something actually even different than that, right? Because it's very easy for anyone, including Jesus, to go to Samaria. It's very easy for us to go to Queens and to eat some of the cultural food that's in Queens. But it's very difficult, or it's much different, than actually sitting down and talking to a Samaritan. I mean, isn't that true? It's easy to go to Samaria, if we can go to the next slide. But it's difficult to actually sit down and talk to a Samaritan. See, there's a difference between being diverse in our optics, in what we look like, in the photo ops that we have, versus actually being a united, diverse community. One such example that I'd like to suggest to you is this. Check out this image. The dreaded L train during rush hour. But here's the thing. We could use any train, the seven train. Any six train people here? Six? Yes, just a few. Our train? No R people here. Wow, that was a bad example. But nonetheless, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like the picture where optically, yes, it looks very diverse. And New York City is this bastion of diversity. And yet there are people who are full of divisions and spite. And there's no way that I would hang out with those people. It could even exist in church communities. On the surface, we could have people from various different backgrounds. But at the end of the day, I'm not really going to connect with someone like that. Because it's very easy to actually go to Samaria, but it's different than actually talking to a Samaritan and actually entering into the world of someone utterly different. I mean, isn't that true? We can talk about the cosmetics of diversity all we want, but what does it mean to enter into the world of another human being, especially someone who's different than me? And at church even, in religious communities, we can continue to exacerbate that very kind of idea that what we do is, yes, we can all show up together, but entering into the world of someone different, I would never do that. Instead, I'll stay within my enclave, and then I'll celebrate diversity in other ways. But what does it look like? Now, here's what's so fascinating, because Jesus, this is what he's doing, right? He's a Jewish man. He's entered into Samaria, and he actually chooses to engage with a Samaritan woman, so different 
than himself. Now, here's what I'd like for you to notice. I'd like for you to notice how does Jesus actually interact with this Samaritan woman? Check this out. It says that Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, why is she coming to draw water at this time? It's because she believes no one's going to be there. Later, we find out about her own sordid past, how she's known as someone who relationally has so much brokenness and pain in it. She probably comes out at the hottest time of day to draw water because she thinks this is the time that no one will be there. Well, surprise, Jesus is there, and he's a Jewish man. But notice how Jesus actually connects with her. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, listen, Samaritan woman, I am Jesus. Let me show you all the miracles that I've done, my great supernatural power, my incredible teaching. I'm actually the son of God. Now, can you just please listen to me right now? No, 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 no. He doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't come and he doesn't say like, hey, uh, listen, oh, good to see you. I know this is kind of awkward. You're a Samaritan woman. I'm a Jewish man, but I just want you to know that like, I'm actually the son of God. And uh, I actually know everything about your past. And because I know that, I really think you should surrender to my love. So you, like, is, we can just cut through all, everything else. And like, can we just like, level set here on who I am and who you are? Or Jesus, he's not someone who's like, hey, hey, my name is Jesus. Actually, you can look me up right now on Google. Look up my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Check out my LinkedIn profile. You can see the connections that I have. Like, you can see my history, my resume. Very impressive. I think it'll impress you, and hopefully then I'll be worth talking to for you. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus has every opportunity to bring his strength, his power, his gifting. I mean, and isn't this what we do at cocktail parties in the city and ways that we measure people up in the city? What we do is we basically come shining with our gleaming gifts, our backgrounds, the schools that we came from, our aptitudes, our social capital. And here Jesus comes. And the way that he connects with this woman, tired as he is from the journey, He says, will you give me a drink? I'm thirsty. Tired. Human. Jesus doesn't emphasize his power, his grandiosity, his deity. He connects with this woman who's so different than who he is. And the way he does so is as a frail, broken human being. Will you give me a drink? Uh, I've told this story before about two friends at the church that I used to be a pastor at. And on the surface, these two friends are like completely different. One friend who I'll call Tom, he was someone who was brilliant and excelled in school. Uh, in fact, he went to Harvard University. And while he was at Harvard, uh, during his four years there, he double majored and he mastered in three separate fields. Yeah, I know. So it's not like, yeah, so if you just think about that. He double majored and he mastered in three separate fields. So he took more than three times the amount of classes that everyone else did. And he got straight A's. I know. I, yeah. So 
this guy's absolutely brilliant. He ended up moving to New York, uh, worked in finance, made a lot of money, incredibly brilliant guy. In fact, I met one of his classmates in college uh, a, a few years later, and I remember talking to this classmate, and this classmate, everyone knew about him, of course, because they knew that he was this legendary brain. And so I remember talking to him, and he said, this, his, this friend of his, he says, he says, oh, man, I heard this one uh, rumor that Tom was like the, the smartest person in Singapore. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that sounds so silly and ridiculous. That's crazy. I'm going to mention that to him. So I remember going back to Tom, and I was like, hey, Tom, dude, I met this other friend of yours from college, and uh, he told me this funny story. He said there was a rumor going around that you were the smartest person in Singapore. And my friend Tom looked at me, and he's like, it's not a very big country, you know. <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness. Dude, it was a joke. It was a joke. But you're serious right now. It's like, it's, well, it's, it's not a very big country. I was like, oh, okay. That's all I need to know. Now, what's interesting is that Tom, like one of his best friends at the church was this guy who was from an Argentinian background, very different than him. In fact, this guy, Willie B, uh, Willie B, he would often say about himself, he would say, I went to UCLA, the University of the Corner of Lexington Avenue. Uh, and... And he would say, like, he was the poster boy for 12-step groups and for Alcoholics Anonymous, Sexual Recovery Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. He would constantly talk about his own recovery journey. Now, on the surface, they're so different. And I remember Tom saying to me, though, he, he's like, you know, we're not very different. I'm not very different than Willie B. I'm like, uh, that's very sweet of you to say. And I realize God brings us together in that united way. But, um, like, what do you mean by that? And he said, this is what I mean. He says, Willie B would often say to me, would often ask me this question. How do you spell relief, Tom? How do you spell relief? And Tom would then say, and Willie B would often say, the way that I've spelled relief for most of my life is H-E-R-O-I-N. Heroin. How do you spell relief, Tom? And Tom said to me, he said, it took him a moment, but one of the things that he realized is that for most of his life, the way that he spelled relief was S-T-U-D-Y-I-N-G. Studying. And Tom said to me, he said, the reason why we're not very different, in fact, we're more similar than we are different, is because... Whenever Willie B would feel anxious or afraid or hurt or sad or lonely, he would run to his addiction. And the world looks at those addictions and it shuns him for what he does. The substance abuse and the alcohol and the sex. And what Tom said to me is he said, but you know what's so insidious? is that the addiction that I carry whenever I felt anxious or sad or afraid or hurt or alone, I would run to studying. And in an insidious way, people would look at what I ran to and they'd be like, that is amazing. You are amazing. And so he said that meanwhile, here he was caught in this place where he had no place and no way of dealing with his pain, his anxiety, his frustration. And so here he was secretly wallowing in depression while no one knew around him some of the pain that he carried. 
because people saw his addiction as being amazing and uplifting it as something to be admired as a virtue. He said, we're not very different, you know? We're not very different. How do you spell relief? How do I spell relief? What's so extraordinary about Jesus is Jesus is someone that the way that he connects with someone so obviously different that he has no business talking to, the way that he connects with another human being is not by talking about how great and wonderful he is, although there might be a time and place for that. He connects by confessing to a fellow human being that I'm tired, I'm thirsty, I'm needy, I'm human. You know what's interesting is that this isn't the only time that Jesus would thirst. Check out John chapter 19. Jesus is hanging on a cross, naked, bearing the weight as Christians, what we believe, he's dying on the cross out of his great love for his people, and he's hanging on a cross naked and vulnerable. And look at what happens. Knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, thirsty. Thirsty. The way that Jesus would save the world is not from power from above. It's not from some extraordinary supernatural demonstration. It's by humbly, vulnerably hanging on a cross. confessing he's thirsty. You know, I think, especially in a city like New York, there's such a temptation for me to think that the extraordinary ways, the only ways that extraordinary things can be done is through extraordinary human, super-duper efforts, is that anything great that's done is done by great charisma and strength and power. And yet the way of Jesus is so different. We have a Savior who's hanging on a cross, who's confessing that he is thirsty, completely powerless, hanging on a cross, demonstrating to us that the way of healing, the way of salvation actually comes through weakness, through our shared humanity, through our shared brokenness, through his own wounds. You know what's so fascinating is so many people missed who Jesus was, and yet, look at what the ancient prophets would say about Jesus and about God. Look what it says, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his supernatural strength, we are healed. And by his incredible social media following, 
we are healed. By his 401k, his great investing strategies. by his wounds. It's by his wounds we are healed. It's by his humanity. It's by his thirstiness, his woundedness. Henry Nouwen would call this the wounded healer because this is what we believe about who God is, that he is a wounded healer. And he invites us, whatever background we come from, whatever resumes we have to bring to the table, all that's required of us to follow this God is that we simply bring our own humble, human, broken selves. Not your resumes, not your job titles, although those might be wonderful. Not your gifts and your talents, although yes, we want you to use your gifts and your talents. To come and bring simply your human, vulnerable, wounded selves. But it's so hard to do in a city like this because everyone is trying to one-up the other, sizing each other up, comparing myself to other people, where they went to school, how much money they make, whether they're on the path that I always wanted to be on in finance, in law, in whatever industry of choice. And yet here's the thing about Jesus. He invites us to a life of together becoming wounded healers, people who confess that we don't actually all have it together. And it's by his wounds we are healed. You know what's interesting is that in the ancient world, there are so many different gods who are recognized by their gifts and their power. And one would think that what makes gods compelling to follow is their great gifts and power, the extraordinary might and the ways they've won wars amongst other gods and goddesses. What's so interesting is that the Christian God, which is so subversive, yes, he is a God of great strength and of great power. But the mystery and the extraordinary explosive power of Jesus is not necessarily his great power and his great strength, but instead it's his great love. The love that would hang on a cross And say, it's by my wounds that I want to bring healing to the world. That together, the solidarity that we find as a common humanity from all of our disparate backgrounds is that we are all wounded, thirsty, hungry, lonely people who need him. Will you be captured by this great love? Now, there's an image that we often use, and Emotionally Healthy Relationship starts this Wednesday, but this image that we use is this image of an iceberg, and it's so easy. The reason why we show this so often is because this is what we do in church communities. This is what we do in our city. We show people that 10%, and there's this 90% below the surface, some of those human elements, the wounds, the sadness, the sorrow that we carry, and we would dare not show anyone this 10%, or rather the 90%. We just want to show this 10%. Because we're afraid of what it will do. We're afraid that maybe we won't measure up with other people. And yet the invitation for us from whatever background we come from is that what brings us together is an admission that I don't have it all together. Is that I've made mistakes. Is that sometimes I get really lonely in the city. 
In other words, I'm thirsty. I'm hungry and I'm tired and I'm needy. And to that, I want to say to you, welcome to the club of common humans who follow a wounded savior, who believe that what God invites us to is a life that's different than simply kind of the superficial kind of community, but rather a community of substance, of friendship, that can somehow go beneath the surface. Now, I'm not saying, right, like today you show up at your next group meeting and you're basically, hey guys, I just want to share my deepest, darkest wounds and my family history and some of the wounds that I carry from this relationship I've had with my mom that's been very toxic. Okay, don't do that because that's kind of weird. Um, but here's what you can do. Have some pizza, talk to some people, get to know them. Maybe go to this Indian-Chinese rooftop dinner that we're having on Friday. Be like, hey, this is weird. And then maybe you can say, oh, yeah, well, tell me about like, your family, what you guys grew up eating. And then, you kind of t- and then you talk about, well, yeah, but my mom and I have this relationship where it's been... T- <laughs> okay, maybe that's not the pathway either. But that's the thing, though. I mean, we, we, we enter into rooms like this, and we're basically like, we're all longing for community. But the reality is there's this protective element to us where we've been betrayed before, we feel hurt, or we feel like, ah, this, these people don't really want to know my business, and I don't really want to know theirs. And so as a result, what we do is we just simply walk around like the subway platform, people in our disparate own spaces, but never truly bonding in a community to experience the fullness of what God has for us. And the invitation is for us to experience more. 